to be able to worship together and share to our church. Uh, as you can see, and as was mentioned, sermon about a month ago on the Lord's Supper and how what the rhyme and reason is. But one of those things really being one as the body of Christ. And so, exhortation to, to members and to meet others, uh, engage and interact with those, actually feels united as we share a meal together and so with people so really exciting that some members brought booth. i believe it's uh, rachel and sarah they dear if you're joining us for the first time we've been going through a sermon series a fascinating study for me both as a listener and as i've been st- god creates the entire world and reason they zeroes in on this micro thing going on there that god through the right story starts with joseph being the favorite son of jacob and as we heard he ends up working for a, a military man but then that crumbles when Potiphar's and in prison, he happens to Pharaoh himself, who has a dream that essentially follow, and as Joseph interprets that, Pharaoh only himself. And that's kind of the bird's eye view of a teen-year-old teenager in chapter 37, and where we're going to flipping pages or looking at chapters, a lot of time a seven-year-old man, and we see God as teenager to what appears to be a God-fearing and humble leader. His family in all of this. More specifically, what's not with them? I'm very glad you asked because that one was story of Joseph and you see him kind of in power and eat the rest of his family and his brothers and keep in mind the context of help and he got sold to slavery and that's where we pick up. Uniting covers chapter 42 all the way to 45. In God's word here at our church, we believe that God is always present. Read verse 1 through 9 and then we'll pick up towards the end of the 42, starting from verse 1. This is the reading of God's word. Looking at each other. Listen, he went on. I've heard there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we will live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers for he thought something might happen to him. The sons of Israel were among those who came to buy grain for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Joseph was in charge of the country. He sold grain to all its people. And his brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the ground. And when Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from, he asked. From the land of Canaan to buy food, they replied. And although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered his dreams about them and said, you are spies. You have come to see the weakness of the land. Now skip to chapter 45, verse 1. Joseph could no longer keep his composure in front of all his attendants, so he called out, send everyone away from me. No one was with him when he revealed his identity to his brothers, but he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and also Pharaoh's household heard it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But they could not answer him because they were terrified in his presence. Brother, he said, the one you sold into Egypt. And now, for the famine has been in the land these two years, and there will be five in the land, and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Verse 8. Therefore, the entire household and ruler over the land of Egypt. It's the reading of God's word that you would. Father, we ask, God, that your spirit would speak through the preaching of your word, that you would expose and move in corners of our hearts that we are not aware of. Ultimately, God, to shape and mold us more to understand the beauty of who you are, what you've done, and how you're working in our lives today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, So there's a popular Korean drama on Netflix that's recently getting more attention because the rest of the season just got released this past Friday. I'm looking forward to watching it. You might have heard it before. It's called The Glory. Okay, it's called The Glory. If you haven't heard of it, it's basically about a female student named Moon Dong-un. She gets ruthlessly bullied in high school. And the whole story of this drama is that she spends essentially the next 20 years of her life never forgetting about thinking through and planning how she's going to get revenge on these bullies. 
And if you didn't know, bullying is actually a really big deal in Korea. They say it's not far-fetched how it's portrayed. It's actually based off real-life events. And as you're watching this and you see the torment that they put her through, you kind of feel conflicted because absolutely you feel terrible for the traumatic bullying that Tongan receives. And you actually kind of totally understand why she would want to get revenge. In fact, you probably want to get it for her. But at the same time, as the story progresses, and I didn't see part two yet, but you can't help but also feel uneasy that, hey, is vengeance still really the path towards healing? Like on the other side of revenge, is Tongun going to come out a better person for it? Or is everybody, everybody just going to be destroyed? Now, I share this very lightly, briefly, because on the surface level, we see Joseph is in a somewhat similar predicament, right? It's kind of fascinating to me how the details are very similar. Joseph also, we see him 20 years later, and he's lived a relatively miserable life, I can say, at the hands of his brothers, right? And so the narrative tension that's been building in the book of Genesis is that God, on a macro level, his purpose for Jacob's 12 sons is to essentially create the nation of Israel out of them, if you didn't know. There's going to be 12 tribes of Israel that's going to comprise what God's people is, an entire nation through the family of Jacob. And so the question we should be asking as a reader is, how in the world is God going to animosity and strife between Joseph and his brothers? On Joseph's head in all these 20 years. And the rod uses his people to be a blessing to follow him and his purposes. Some years before calling him to lead. Most of us aren't even forced. Took him through long years of servanthood and being deceived that God's doing that and has done that with Joseph, right? He's kind of shunned the brothers. The rest of the tribes of Israel, we'll see. We'll see how God changes the heart of not only the form us to be a blessing to all because be loving and be a blessing to all. And we'll look at this in three thinking as I read this text. And the three, way, three ways we'll look at is number one, what does God do to change our hearts? What does he actually do? Two, how does he go about doing it? And the third and last, why can he do this? Why can he approach us in the way that he does? Okay, so first, what does God do to change hearts? So if you get to the root of the problem within Joseph's family, right, based on what you know, like what do you think it would be? Just think about that. Like if somebody asks, what is the bottom of the bottom issue that started all this chaos in Joseph's family? I think it could be argued, and it's not hard to actually make the case, that it all stems from the father, right? That's why even in counseling today, when we talk about mental health and a lot of issues like that, everybody says family of origin is a big deal. Your father and your relationship with him is a big deal. And so the father, a.k.a. Jacob, how do we know this? Well, for one, we've already seen that Jacob had a major problem with favoritism, right? He overloved and idolized Joseph, which made his brothers envious and hate him out of jealousy. And it puffed up Joseph's ego to be this narcissistic, prideful guy that thought he was better than everyone else. And 20 years later, we actually catch hints that that's still there. If you look at the text, starting from verse 1, there's a, basically a famine in the land. And so Jacob learns, hey, there's grain in Egypt. So he t- tells his brothers, look how he talks to the 10 brothers. Why do you keep looking at each other? Go to Egypt and get grain. That doesn't seem very warm and tender, does it? It almost seems like there's either like a distance or coldness that Jacob has towards them. But look at this. While he sends 10 of the brothers down to Egypt... He doesn't send Benjamin, his prized Joseph 2.0, son of his favorite wife. If you didn't know, they're not all all from the same mom. Only Joseph and Benjamin were from his favorite wife, Rachel. And he holds him back. So Jacob treats his ten sons very coldly, doesn't care that they're risking their life going to Egypt, but he's caring deeply about his special prized child, Benjamin. 
Now, I think I want to do a little service to the brothers here because if you look, you know, if you grew up in the church and you hear the story of Joseph or even watch like animated videos of it, you know, the brothers, they always come out as these like evil villainous people. You know what I'm talking about? It's like, ooh, the brothers and like they're these like evil people. And Joseph always comes out as this like innocent victim. Not true at all. In fact, the fact of the matter is we fail to realize the brothers, they're lacking so much love. They're so broken. They are acting in the same way that Joseph acts out of the overlove he received. These brothers act out of the brokenness of the underlove that they experienced from their father. And with that context, the angle of this story that I personally never really noticed is that what God is doing in the lives of Joseph and his brothers, and by extension, what he does in all of our lives, is God steps in to be the father that Jacob never was or never could be. And even for us today, this is pivotal to understand that God, primarily the role he's taking in our lives is not just, but he is coming in as a father. Again, we've heard multiple times and you times as I heard this story before. And even growing up as a little kid, I knew if you told me what's Joseph about, I would say it's that God is in control. He uses evil for good, blah, 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 right? But it never really moved me. It never did. Because it carries the idea when someone just says God is sovereign, that God is this like, powerful, distant being, yes, but he's just kind of like moving chess pieces around. Don't you ever get that feeling? Like you're like, you're like a pawn, maybe at best a rook in God's ultimate plan, and he's just kind of moving things around. But when you change your paradigm to see that God is not just sovereign, but he has the posture of a sovereign father, it actually opens up the story in a new way. Uh, Pastor Tim Kelly, he shares that there's a very key passage in the New Testament to help better understand what it is that God is doing in the lives of Joseph and his brothers. And I agree with him. And the passage comes from Hebrews 12. I put just snippets of it here on the screen. It's from Hebrews 12, verse 5 to 11. Here's what it says. It says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. God is treating you as sons. We've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, as you hear and read this passage, uh, it's very triggering for many of us who are Asian, obviously, because the word discipline it carries a very negative connotation for a lot of us. And most of our experiences were sinful, right? It was either anger from our parents or it was punishment. But I'm going to take a little time to unpack this because it's actually key to understand how God relates not only here but even today. And the word used there for discipline is this word paideia. This word paideia. It does not translate to mean punishment. Okay? It doesn't mean punishment. And the reason this is so important is because anytime the talk of God disciplining you comes up, most people viscerally feel that that means that God is punishing you. Not true at all. Paideia carries the meaning, please catch this, of practicing oversight over the entire environment of a child so that the child receives whatever the child needs to grow strong and mature. Okay? So paideia... It's the root word for what we call pediatrics. You know what's been really fascinating to me is we always hear that God is a great physician. We never hear that God's a pediatrician. It's a little bit different. Because the way a pediatric doctor approaches their patients is a little bit different. And I don't think we ever mature from being beyond children in the kingdom of God. Food for thought. So if that's the case, why isn't paideia just translated as care or concern? 
that God brings care into our life or concern. Why discipline? Because obviously that's a little bit of a different tone. Because paideia, it implies that at times, in order to help someone grow, it requires consequence and unpleasant things to be introduced. This is something I'm familiar with. Uh, I have two young sons, and anyone who tells you that they visit a pediatrician, you'll quickly realize the goal of a pediatrician, they just give him a bunch of candy, and he'd be happy. A lot of pain. You know why? Because pediatricians, their goal isn't ultimately their happiness. It's to make them healthy. To make them to grow strong and be the best child and human that they can be. Even if that means introducing pain, like shots, to protect them, or doing things that they might not be comfortable with in order for their well-being. That's a more passive example, but a more active one that parents understand. You have to implement discipline and consequences if you want your child to walk down a healthy path, right? Like if your child lies or steals or grows a habit of hitting people or being rude or being selfish, and all you do to them is, come here, come here. It's okay. I love you. It's okay. You know what that's going to lead to? It's going to lead to a very destructive life. And I've heard so many stories and testimonies of children when they get older. There's two things that happen when they talk to their parents. Either it is utter gratitude that their parents love them enough to practice paideia in their life. Thank you, father and mother, for loving me enough to correct me, even though it wasn't easy, so that I can become who I am today. Or on the flip side, a somewhat resentment feeling because their parents didn't love them enough to provide paideia in their life. Now, there obviously is a fine line between discipline and punishment, right? Many of us, like I said, have been on the receiving end of discipline that was fused with anger. And if you're a parent, I'm sure you've also given into disciplining your child in that way before. I, I experienced this a lot. I thought I would always be this perfect, loving father. And I'm, I usually have two strikes, right? So if my son does something and makes me angry, I lovingly try to correct him. He does it again, I lovingly try to correct him. The third time, I don't care about him. I just want to pay him back. He's a two-year-old boy. That just shows how fickle we are. And our parents, you can all relate, I'm sure. Even this past week, how many times did you get angry? Not, out of for, not for paideia and loving discipline, because you just wanted to let them know, like, I'm going to put you in your place. And you even have to be a parent to do that. Maybe you're a teacher, maybe you're an educator, maybe you're a mentor, whatever it might be. And the point is not to guilt trip anyone. The point is that we're all prone to this. There is no perfect teacher, parent, mentor, older figure out there that can love and perfectly provide paideia in this way. That's why we all need God. We all need a sovereign father who knows exactly how to lovingly place appropriate paideia in our lives to lead us down the path of righteousness and health. Tim Keller and I quote, he says this about that. He says, real paideia, it is an exercise of love. You bring into the child's life just enough unpleasantness and not an iota more to change the child and help them escape from being a liar. You bring just enough to lovingly change and mature and grow the child into something good. Now we'll see in a bit how this plays out in the lives of the brothers of Joseph. But here's why this should provide comfort for us today, okay? Because the assertion I just made biblically is this. If you call yourself a Christian and a child of God, God's going to discipline you. And you should glory in that. Why? Well, look at Joseph's story. Clearly filled with brokenness, is it not? Just think about it. As a result of an idolatrous dad, he gets a disproportionate amount of ego and love because of that. He experiences betrayal from his brothers who should be those closest to him. He experiences injustice in Potiphar's house just for doing the right thing. He experiences abandonment in prison when he should have been supported by the one that he helped. 
And what the text is doing and all of these things that are happening is that in the background, God is working as Joseph's sovereign father to take all these external broken circumstances and bring them in relationship with Joseph's internal brokenness in only a way that God can. And he fuses those together to mature, to grow, and strengthen Joseph to become the type of man that can be who God always dreamed him to be. A blessing. A blessing in the land of Egypt and to bring salvation for his family. Catch this then. What this means is that the primary takeaway from Joseph's story is not if you endure trials and suffering long enough, like Joseph, God's going to raise you up, give you status, wealth, prestige, and make your dreams come true. How many of you heard sermons like that? It's so ingrained in the Christian culture. People say it all the time. I, I have grown personally to hate that message. Just be patient like Joseph because everything's going to work out better. I've pastored long enough. That greater thing waiting for you. You know why? Because number one, it's not biblical. And two, I've pastored long enough. That faulty message leads so many Christians to feel so heartbroken and bitter towards God because he seems to be showing up and working in everyone else's lives but theirs. And it breaks my heart because that's not who God is. Now, I know we can't help but gravitate towards those kind of stories and testimonies. That's why we share it all the time. We're suffering and hardship. Hey, it was all just preparation for this externally good outcome, right? Like, ever heard this one before? Oh, man, I'm single, but God kept me single all these years because he was preparing me for the one the one was waiting for me. So like Joseph, I was just being prepared for that. Or how about this one? Oh man, I didn't get this job, but here's why. Joseph is telling me because God has a better, better paying job with better benefits waiting for me. So that's what it is. That's my hope. But here's the thing. That might be true. But it also might not be true. And the point is no one knows. Nobody knows. It could be that God's waiting so he can give you a better position. It could be that Satan's the one trying to elevate you so that you get prideful. Nobody knows on the outside. And it misunderstands God's purpose if that's where our focus is to think that God's ultimate goal in our lives and his work is to make external fulfillment the greatest goal. You see, Genesis clearly shows that God has a bigger, much more grand purpose in our life and it's not to give us a certain type of life here in the oc we need to hear this okay god could care less if you have your status quo middle class living standard he could care less and quite frankly in the oc at least that's probably one of the greatest things that prevents us from living the type of life that god wants us to he's not trying to give you a certain type of life he is always 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 since genesis trying to form you into a type of person And the only sure thing we can find rest in whenever we experience the loving discipline of God is that he is bringing it into our life to grow us more and more to the dream he's always had for us, to be the glorious, selfless, imago Dei image of God that is now freed from ourselves to be a blessing to others. So loving fatherly paideia is what God does to change, but how does he do it? Point number two. Well, to understand how God works in the change of the hearts of Joseph's brothers, we have to take a quick look at what actually happens in this story. And obviously, there's a lot of ground to cover. I'm going to skip and zoom through some parts. But let me explain the story just to give you an idea. You might have heard it before, but here it goes. 
the end in chapter 42, we see there's a great famine. And so that leaves Joseph's brothers to go to Egypt. And that's their first reunification for over 20 years. And obviously the question is, what's going to happen? And so Jacob sends his 10 brothers without Benjamin. And they run to Joseph. And the text tells us Joseph immediately recognizes them. They don't recognize him. And in that moment, he remembers his two dreams, right? And he hides his identity and does something really weird. He grows very cold and harsh. And he accuses them of being spies. And so the brothers go, no, 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 we're not spies. We're, we're all from the same family. We're, from, we're sons of one man. And more details come out here. We're a total of 12 brothers, our youngest, Benjamin, back at home with dad. And the other is no more, a.k.a. Joseph. They probably thought he was dead. So Joseph gives a test and says, okay, if you're saying it's true, here's what we're going to do. All of you guys stay here. One of you go back. Bring this youngest brother of your so-called. And then I'll know if you're telling the truth. And he throws them in prison for three days. After three days, Joseph takes them out, changes his mind, and says, you know what, I've changed my mind, I'm going to be more gracious. All of you don't have to stay, only one of you stay here in prison, I'll give the rest of you guys food, go back home, and then bring your youngest brother back, and I'll know you're not spies, and you'll get your captive brother back. So they go home, explain to Jacob, and Jacob basically is like, nah, I'm not going to do it, I'm not going to risk Benjamin. Fun little tidbit here, how messed up to Simeon? If you guys don't know Simeon, he's in prison, (laughs) His brothers basically just abandoned him. So he's probably like, hello, are you guys coming back? He's just there in Egypt. Chapter 43, the famine gets worse. They run out of that supply of food, and it gets so bad that Jacob tells them, you got to go back, even if it means sending Benjamin. So they return. And the reason they return is because the fourth brother, Judah, promises to his dad, I will risk my own life if necessary for Benjamin's well-being. So they go on that promise, and Joseph throws a big old party and feast, and he feeds them. And he loads them up and says, I'm going to send you back with plenty of grain and money. But there's this side mission that he gives to his his servant and steward and says, place my prized silver cup in the youngest sack, Benjamin's sack. And as the brothers are shocked at the grace and kindness they've received, they're journeying home. The steward stops them in their tracks and says, the silver cup has been stolen. And they say, it wasn't us. Go ahead and look. They search every single one. And if you read it, there's a lot of buildup to this. They go from oldest to youngest. And lo and behold, It is in Benjamin's sack. And so all the brothers go back to Egypt to Joseph, bow down before him, a.k.a. dream fulfilled, and say, we are now your slaves. And Joseph says, not necessary. You guys are free to go. Only the one who had my uh, cup, a.k.a. Benjamin, he's the one that's going to be a slave. You're all free to go. And it's in that moment where you see this climactic moment where Judah, the fourth brother, steps forward. He gives this powerful speech where he basically offers his own life in place of Benjamin's. And that's when Joseph finally realizes these brothers are changed. There's a burst out emotion and there's a great embracing that we're going to talk more about next week. But for now, that's essentially the gist of the story. What a wild story. Even just zooming through it. Like it's a very strange series of events. Like when you first read it, it seems like, okay, Joseph is, he's being really cold. So maybe he's trying to get revenge, but that can't be the case because Paying his brothers back would mean that they did what he does to them, what they did to him, which is slavery and years in prison. He doesn't make them slaves right away, and he puts them in prison only for three days, right? So it can't be necessarily payback. And also, if Joseph is really filled with a vengeful spirit, why is he randomly showing acts of kindness to them, right? Like, he he sends food back home with them. He asks about the father's well-being, and he throws this lavish feast upon them. And then after that, though, he suddenly has, like, this change of heart, And he incriminates Benjamin as if he stole the cup, even though it's really bizarre if you think about it. And, you know, without asking too many questions, if you just read it, you're just like, oh, interesting. 
But if you really think about it, what's going on here? It doesn't make any sense. You almost wish it was more black and white, don't you? And the weirdest part about it for me is if you periodically look, Joseph, a vengeful person, is not going to be weeping. And gives a very insightful explanation of what Joseph is doing here. Derek Kidner is the commentator, and I quote. It's a little longer, but it's so good. He writes, At first sight, the rough handling by Joseph of his brothers has the look of vengefulness, but nothing could be further from the truth. Behind the harsh pose was deep, almost uncontrollable affection seen in Joseph's continual running out of the room to weep. Joseph's enigmatic treatment of them was a kinder and more searching test. Just how well judged was his policy can be seen in the growth of new attitudes in the brothers. Catch this part as the alternating sun and frost broke them open to God. I personally love images. It helps me understand things better. I think this image is a powerful one. If you didn't know, the hardest rock, the strongest concrete, if you expose it enough times to alternating extreme heat, extreme cold, extreme heat, it breaks. It cracks. There is some power that happens when you do that hot, cold, hot, cold treatment. And that's the very same imagery and method that God is using to break and change Joseph, his brothers, and I would argue even us today. Like, what did it look like in Joseph's life? Look at Joseph's life. Favorite son, slave, highest in Potiphar's house, imprisoned, second in command in Egypt. What is going on here? It's like this elation, deflation, elation, deflation, hot, cold treatment that's going on. And I would say a better, helpful way to understand this, the hot and cold can be the dichotomy we often use between truth and love. Truth and love. Uh, Here's how this is playing out in my parenting journey. Like I mentioned, and sorry that I bring up Ezra so much. It's because he's like 80% of my life right now. So that's, like, that's all I got, okay, for now, these days. But he's uh, two and a half, and so he's in his testing boundaries phase right now. And it's very interesting for me to discover as a parent, like, what works and what doesn't work. Now, granted, every kid's different in the way they respond. But at least for me, I found the general truth. When Ezra does something wrong, when he commits a sin, If I approach him, and I've done both of these, if I approach him only with coldness and justice and truth, he just cries and shuts down. It's very interesting. And more importantly, it doesn't register to him to change. He's just afraid. So I tried the other way. That clearly doesn't work because maybe that bleeds my colors. My natural leaning is more that way. So on the flip side, I've shown when Ezra commits a sin, if I'm too quick to just show warmth and love and immediately pour out just, oh, it's okay, don't worry about it, no problem, I also noticed he doesn't really register the fact that what he did was wrong. And he doesn't change. And the great challenge for us, not just as parents, but all of us who follow Jesus is how do you find that sweet spot between truth and love that can together bring about genuine, true change? See, many of us have tendencies to lean one way or another, but God as a sovereign father knows just how much and to what extent sun and frost, truth and love was needed to break us. And this is what Joseph is doing as God's vessel of discipline in the lives of his brothers. Think about it. If Joseph only wanted justice, it'd be so easy. His brothers into the court, I remember you guys, prison, slavery. They would have felt the full wrath of justice, absolutely, and hugged them. They would have experienced that. But here's the thing. In both situations, you know what would have never happened then? They wouldn't have changed. Because justice alone changes no one, and kindness alone changes no one. 
And what we see that is Joseph doesn't want to just forgive the brothers, because if you didn't know, the implication is actually that Joseph has already forgiven them, if you didn't know that. We see here that Joseph loves his brothers enough to not just forgive them, but to now pursue them and want to be a vessel to help heal and restore them. And that's why we have this drawn-out, chaotic journey where he places them in these weird tests, places them in situations of truth and conviction of sin, by placing them in prison to think about what they've done, but also shows them grace and kindness, that he is actually a fair and good ruler. Now bring it home to us today by extension. I'm sure for many of us, we can't help but wonder, why does God just mess up my life so much? You ever wonder that? Like things are good. And he just throws like these curveballs and brings these hardships. Like if God is good and all, and I believe in that, why this up and down treatment? Like why I get a job and I lose a job. I get a relationship, lose a relationship, get into a marriage. I'm happy and spouse is not who I thought they were. How come I'm still single? How come my family's always getting sick? Why is God always taking things in my life and putting them back in? And here's why. God is not just interested in forgiving you from your brokenness. You guys understand that? That'd be very easy for God to do. You sin, all good, we're cool. The gospel tells us God loves you too much, so he will mess with your life in order to not just forgive you from your brokenness, but to pursue you to heal you of your brokenness. Very different. And that requires him to break you. Break you out of your sense of self-sufficiency and pride and blindness to yourself. So with that in mind, then how should we respond when God brings this kind of paideia and difficulty in our lives? I'm sure many of you in this room are going through a season where you may be experiencing some sort of struggle, hardship, or difficulty. And just take like five seconds to think about it. Either something that has happened, is happening, or may happen. We live in a broken world. It's inevitable. And the temptation when things are not going our way, if you're like me, isn't it to ask, man, why isn't God doing this? Like, God is good. Why isn't he bringing this kind of blessing in my life? Why isn't he allowing this to pan out? Why isn't he doing that? But what the story of Joseph shows is that for those who follow Jesus and who say that God is our father, the actual question we should ask is not what God isn't doing on the outside. It's what is God doing on the inside? Very different. Let me give you an illustration. One thing my wife and I do at time to time in the evenings as we decompress to kind of like love and serve each other is we give each other massages because we have crazy knots on our shoulders, okay? Uh, carrying kids, doing all the work, and sleeping in weird postures. Like, it just creates massive knots on our shoulders. And if you've never had a knot before, it's basically this extremely painful trigger that hurts like crazy when you massage it. Some of them are easier to find. My wife's knot, it's like hidden deep within the valley, so she needs to like contort her shoulders. And knots is, they're painful, but the only are knots. And I share that because I think it's a helpful analogy to see what God does in our suffering and our discipline is he puts his divine finger on our spiritual knots in our lives that we have wrongly placed our security, our hope, our joy, and our fulfillment in, and everybody has different knots. Some of you, it's up here. Some of you, it's down there. Some of you, it's more straightforward. And some of you, God literally needs to maneuver between the crevices and cracks of your heart because it's so hidden deeply, but it's there. For some of us, it's career. How do you know that? Because if God touches your career, you feel extreme pain and stress. 
Your life feels disoriented. You can't function. Why? Because that's your spiritual nut. You've placed all your eggs there, so if God touches that, you're doomed. But other of us, God touches Korea, and you're like, oh, that's all good, God. That's fine. Then you'll be like, okay, then, how about this? And you'll touch your relationships. And suddenly you're all stressed and anxious now because why? Relationships is your nest egg. You've placed all your hope and security and fulfillment there. So God will touch there. And the point is this. It's different for everyone, but everyone has them. Now, it's one thing if it's small things here and there. But I know for others, it's much deeper. Right? Like, I use the analogy of, like, you know, parental discipline and like, you know, we can all kind of stomach the idea of like, yeah, if my kid's misbehaving, you know, I'll discipline him a little bit here and there and that's what God does to us. But you think about this. It's an extreme analogy, but think about this, okay? Imagine your son or your daughter has a cancerous, infectious, unpreventable infection on their arm that is spreading. And to save their life, you got to amputate their arm. Because I'm for some of us, that's what discipline feels like. I feel very guilty sometimes as a pastor if I say these kind of hopeful messages and someone comes up to me and says, well, I lost a loved one. That doesn't feel like it's redeemable. That doesn't seem like something that God's going to work together for good. They're just gone. So understand, I understand there's depths of this. Uh, A quick personal story of how this worked out in my life. So my trigger point was family. I didn't know it at the time. My trigger point was I always placed all my security, hope, fulfillment, and value and worth in the fact that we came from like the prototypical ideal family, right? Pastor's kid, dad pastors in a long time for a really long time, three siblings who are relatively cool and, you know, we like each other, and we grew up for, you know, 20 plus years of my life, and I had no idea that more than God himself, I thought that's where my worth and value is. I'm this good Christian son. I'm a good PK. We're a good godly family. And we're going down this road of, if I can say in hindsight now, absolute pride. Looking down on everyone. Thinking we are superior to all. Not understanding grace. Proclaiming it but not needing it. And here's the trigger point where God really touched. About 10 years ago, we experienced extreme cold frost of sin. Right? Sin entered into my family's life, and my dad committed this extremely, extremely hurtful, painful sin. And that just absolutely triggered and shattered all of my family. And it's been 10 years, and I think now finally I'm beginning to realize, 10 years later, God needed to do that. Because had he not done that, the gospel that my family so proclaimed, we didn't even need it. And I think as a pastor, I'd be half the pastor I was now if I walked down that path of pride, placing all of my worth and value in my performance, in my religious duties, rather than realizing that's all rubbish before the Lord. And everything, including even the deepest, closest relationships like my family, all must be surrendered to the Lord if I want to be free to be used by him. And it takes time. I think it took me two years just to even realize that I was angry. Right? That's how much God was like, Poking, poking. It took Joseph 20 years. And one thing I want to encourage and say about that is because of how hard some of our hearts are, God has to take his time. And he's more than willing to take his time. He's not in a rush. I think you get the point. God will intentionally bring paideia into your life in areas that need to be exposed and massaged out for you to see you are placing your hope and trust in something dream God has for you. 
to be freed up to love and serve in the way that God has created you to do. And as cheesy as it sounds, recognize, whether you realize it or not, the story of Joseph basically is saying that God has a dream for every single one of us in here that call ourselves Christian. He has a dream for your life. He dreams big dreams for you. The problem is your dreams often don't match up with his, but he makes his dream explicit. What is his dream? For you to be a blessing. For you to be liberated from self-love that caused the brokenness to spiral the world into destruction and to the power of the spirit, what God does is he wants to purge the self-absorption and selfishness caused by the brokenness of the fall in our hearts out and he will use frost and sun, frost and sun to break you in order to what? Create you to be the selfless image of Christ that can now actually love, serve, and be a blessing. And in light of that, that means that gives us a framework to understand everything that happens in our lives. I love this quote by John Newton. He says, in that framework then, everything in our life that God sends is necessary and nothing can be necessary that we withhold. That means in this moment right now, all the good, the bad, the struggles that's happening in your life, all of it is sovereignly necessary by the Father. And anything you feel like my life is incomplete without right now, that's not happening, that can't be necessary right now because that's why God's withholding it. Which is the third and final. Now, why can God approach us in this way, right? Because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a big justice guy and the golden question is, okay, I, I get that Joseph forgave his brothers. It's one thing for a sinner to forgive other sinners. But God's not a sinner. God is holy, pure, radiant, he cannot stand the presence of sin. So how is God just suddenly, just, you know, casually coming into the lives of these sinners who deserve punishment and justice and suddenly relating as a father? Well, let's look briefly back at the story. The one thing that's clear throughout the story is the fact that Joseph, he doesn't enjoy putting his brothers through this. That's why he's keep on going out and crying. That's why you realize when they finally end up revealing and restoring the relationship, it's almost like he's wanted to do it since day one, but there was a blockage. There was an obstacle that was preventing this from happening for true reconciliation to happen, and it's the idea that his brothers finally got it. The confirmation that their hearts had actually changed. And what we see here is in this um, deja vu situation that Joseph masterly sets up. Right? Because again, what is the final scenario that the brother attested with? It's Benjamin, the youngest. He's going to be in slavery. The brothers, you're free to go. Does that sound like another scenario? 20 years earlier, Joseph in the pit, the brother's free to go. And do you know who the ringleader was at that time that initiated the, hey, we should just sell him off? It was Judah. Judah was the one that says, I got an idea. Let's just save our own butts and send them off. And 20 years later, Deja vu, God through Joseph creates the exact same situation. Y'all are free to go take the food and the money. Just leave the youngest. And you see Joseph watching, the heavenly courts watching. And just in case you feel like, oh, Judah didn't have a choice, he absolutely had a choice. If Judah was the same Judah, he could have easily, ruler of Egypt basically said, I got no choice, so we had to leave Benjamin there, sorry. And Jacob would not be able to verify it. He wouldn't know if that's what really happened. So don't think that Judah didn't have a choice. He absolutely had a choice. But out of the overflow of his heart, we see this climactic moment where Judah steps forward. And now we see that that selfish, self-preserving Judah who only cared about his own well-being, that's been purged out of him because he comes before Joseph the governor and he says, 
we cannot leave Benjamin here because that will break my father. My father loves Benjamin. He would not be able to survive without him. You don't understand the type of relationship that they have. Take me instead. And that is the first example of what will be called substitutionary sacrifice that's recorded later in Scripture. And it is with that that his selfless act of being willing and able for the care and concern and burden for others' well-being, that Joseph finally realizes his hearts have been melted and you see reconciliation. And is that not the same exact thing that happens in the heavenly courts with the heavenly father and the son? Because later down in the line of Judah, whether you know it or not, and please come a couple weeks from now when Pastor Tom's going to preach on this. Judah is a fascinating, biblically significant character. Would love to hear more about it. His son is named, his son is named Judah, so obviously Pastor Tom cares about it. But without spoiling or going into detail, did you know later generations down the line, a greater son's going to be born out of Judah's line, and his name is Jesus. And Jesus is going to come before the Heavenly Father as well and do the same exact thing. Father, your love for your people is so great. So God doesn't just brush aside. He doesn't get rid of the frost and necessary conviction and judgment of sin. He rather redirects it, pours it on his son. That's why he can approach us with paideia. Fatherly, loving, careful discipline and not judgment. And as we close, I mean, that's what the gospel is. I think Keller puts it so well. The gospel is the ultimate sun and frost. I think the problem in today's modern era is we skip this part too quickly. I don't know how you guys are feeling heading into the Lord's Supper today. I feel like trash. (laughs) When I look at the past couple weeks of my life, I've not been the ideal husband or father. I've lashed out in anger, in bitterness. I have not given attention to the Lord like I should have. And the Lord's Supper is not a time for you to just be like, but we're good, right, God? No, you should feel that. Feel the frost. Understand that that's what nailed Christ to the cross. Don't skip over the frost because then your heart will not break in the way that it needs to. You are so bad, according to the gospel, that somebody had to die. And that's as true as when you got saved that is this today. But then the sun rises and comes up and says, but you are so loved that he was glad to do it. Glad to die for you. That now, when you understand what needed to happen, the sacrifice that took place on your behalf, there is genuine, not just forgiveness, but reconciliation and restoration and love that pursues you as the Heavenly Father does. And is that not what the Lord's Supper does? That as the sun and frost once again breaks your heart, you're able to go to something like a cafeteria lunch and realize it's not about me anymore. You're able to go into your weeks and be like, it's not about what I want anymore. It's about being a blessing to all. So in a moment, again, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper and what greater opportunity than to practice it then. Let's pray together.